This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of May 22nd, 2023, here are some top stories. Phoenix created a new arm of government in May of 2021 to provide independent oversight of its police department. But state lawmakers weakened the Office of Accountability and Transparency's ability to investigate wrongdoing. A new deal was recently struck, requiring regular communication and information sharing by the police department with the Oversight Office. Matthew Casey reports. Arizona has taken in thousands of people who had to flee Somalia. A corner cafe in a strip mall near 50th Street in McDowell is a door to the Somali community. Mukhtar Sheikh is a respected leader. This is where everybody comes when they need help. Um, and this is where we knew Ali. Uh, he used to have his own company. Ali Asman provided medical transportation. With his mom still in a refugee camp in Kenya, his mental health failed. Asman was shot and killed by Phoenix police last year after throwing rocks at officers. He was not a bad guy. He was not a criminal. He was not someone that hurts the community. He, he was just somebody who needed help. Sheikh spoke before the Maricopa County attorney's recent announcement that officers who shot Osman will not face charges. Osman's family has filed a federal lawsuit against Phoenix. But he loved his mom. And one thing me and him, we always talked about him going back home and visiting his mom. Phoenix PD has advisory boards to build trust with specific communities. Sheikh served on a board for refugees, but was kicked off in 2018, reportedly for unspecified complaints about his behavior at meetings. Sheikh says he's not anti-police. He just wanted talks to go both ways. But it seems like the police just wanted one-way communication. Just always support the police, always agree with the police, and that's not honest work. So two years ago, Sheikh was on a long list of speakers urging the Phoenix City Council to pass an ordinance establishing independent police oversight. The city's vice mayor at the time, Carlos Garcia, fronted the effort. Garcia called on those who backed him to see things through. A lot of these folks that have been in the community and have been thinking about this are going to be crucial to making sure that we get this right. Garcia lost his council seat in a March runoff. He did not reply to interview requests. This is him again in 2021, shortly before voting to create the Office of Accountability and Transparency. It will have independent investigation um, and hopefully, again, would be the key to, to create trust with the community. So. But interference from state lawmakers and Phoenix choosing not to sue has meant that today the Police Oversight Office can only monitor internal investigations. 28 and counting, including the police department's own open reviews of the Ali Osman shooting. The City of Phoenix Police Department has a long history of not participating in honest reviews of itself. Larry Wolkin is a lawyer with experience representing Phoenix and people who sue the city. What is disappointing is how slow it has taken the city to get the office up and running. Having been on both sides, Wolkin knows how newly required monthly sit-downs between PD and the Oversight Office will feel. That will be an uncomfortable meeting. 
They were written into a recently signed Memorandum of Understanding on Evidence Sharing. PD also has to deliver biweekly lists of open internal investigations. Both the office and the department have to pick a go-between. Disputes get arbitrated by the city manager. The city of Phoenix Police Department has had a history of fighting against reform. Whether the Office of Accountability and Transparency can change its direction is something that only time will tell, but I have my doubts. Back in the cafe, Mukhtar Sheikh, the former refugee, says implementing a new government office is much harder than winning a city council vote. Progress has been slow, but he's still hopeful and has faith in top officials. One thing I learned working with the community, nothing happened fast. <laughs> Sheikh repeatedly mentions that police are a necessary part of society. And if Phoenix wanted his help building trust between refugees and officers again, Sheik says he'd be there. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news. Summers in Phoenix have always been hot, but heat-related deaths in Maricopa County have been rising. Last summer was the deadliest on record, so this year the county is spending more on heat relief than it ever has in hopes of turning the trend around. Katherine Davis-Young reports. Barbara Gakey has lived in a modest house in the retirement community of Sun City West for 30 years. She loves Arizona and doesn't mind the summers as long as she can relax inside in her big recliner. That's where she sat when I paid her a visit. It feels nice and cool in here today. Oh, wonderful. You don't know what we went through. A few weeks ago, as temperatures started climbing to triple digits, Gakey's air conditioner stopped working. Gakey is 90 years old with a number of health problems. She turned up the ceiling fans but soon felt weak and nauseous. I was so sick because I was so hot and I, I, I just couldn't take the hot weather. Gakey's granddaughter Amber Stilson takes care of her full time. They rely on Gakey's small retirement income. Replacing an AC unit could cost more than $10,000. I was just afraid for her because she couldn't afford it. And she couldn't live like this, so I didn't know what the next step would be, so I just called everywhere. Eventually, Stilson ended up on the phone with a representative from Maricopa County who arranged for Geiki's AC to be replaced, free of charge. We are further ahead of the game than we ever have been when it comes to addressing heat relief in our community. Jacqueline Edwards is director of the county's Human Services Department. She says the AC replacement program is one of several new initiatives the Board of Supervisors has funded to mitigate the effects of heat. Over the past year, the county has replaced about 500 AC units for vulnerable, low-income homeowners. They plan to replace another five to 600 in the months ahead. This could mean a matter of life and death. That's not hyperbole. Last year, a record 425 people in Maricopa County died because of heat. County analysis shows when heat deaths happened indoors, the majority of the time the AC was not working. But most of the county's heat deaths in recent years have occurred outdoors. County officials say the biggest summer health threat is not just scorching temperatures. It's that the number of unsheltered people in the region is triple what it was 10 years ago. It can become a dangerous situation for people. Danielle McMahon oversees dining services for the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. She witnesses firsthand how the heat strains unsheltered people. 
People come in, they're definitely in need of reprieve from the elements. It's very hard to sleep at night when it's so hot outside, so people are exhausted physically and mentally. This summer, the county is spending $2.4 million to partner with Phoenix, Mesa, Glendale, and other cities on heat relief for homeless residents. They'll open daytime cooling shelters, fund street outreach teams, and even pay for hotel vouchers and transportation. McMahon's Dining Hall is getting funding too. Starting on Memorial Day, the cafeteria will open in the afternoons as a cooling center. Then they'll fold up the tables and fill the building with 200 beds for overnight heat relief. Oh, so you have the beds like all, all through this hallway? Yeah. yeah. Every, it sounds like every inch that you can? Yep. Uh, we just try to max out the capacity, keeping it safe, but we want to get as many people inside as we can. The dining hall has been used as a makeshift overnight shelter in the past, but it can only operate that way when outside funding is available. This year, the funding is massive. The county is putting nearly $14 million this summer toward this overnight cooling shelter, the city partnerships, and the AC replacement program. That's on top of $500 million the Board of Supervisors has directed toward affordable housing and homelessness solutions since 2020. And McMahon thinks the investments are making some impact. I feel hopeful that there are more opportunities this summer than last for people to get inside. But most of this funding is temporary. It's coming out of pandemic aid the county received from the federal government. And time will tell if the unprecedented spending will be enough to significantly reduce the number of heat deaths this summer. Jacqueline Edwards with the county hopes it will. And she hopes the programs will be enough of a success that the county will continue to find ways to invest in some of them even after federal funding runs out. But she says even getting just one more person out of the heat will be a success. One more person served than what we were able to do last year is going to make a difference in our community. Back in Sun City West, Barbara Gakey says when she found out the county was going to help her stay cool this summer, it made all the difference in the world. I was so happy I would cry. I would cry. Catherine Davis Young, KJZZ News, reporting from Sun City West. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, new technologies using artificial intelligence, or AI, are shaking up many industries, including publishing and art. Authors and artists are questioning whether it's a tool or cheating, and whether AI will eliminate their work. From our business desk, Christina Estes reports. Some of my earliest work were these mandalas. Mixed-media artist Marissa Vedrio draws inspiration from familiar places. I love bright color. Her Phoenix garden, California road trips, and years spent in Norway. I like to use my hands. I like to get dirty. So do her elementary school students at Brett Tarver Leadership Academy. You know, paintbrushes, clay, glue, scissors. In her art classes, copying often pops up. A lot of the kids are like, oh, you're copying me, you're copying me. I'm like, we're all copying. You're copying from me. And then from there, you're putting your own spin on it. You're adding your own background. You're adding your own ideas. When students want to use a familiar symbol like Nike Swoosh, Badrio has to explain trademarks and copyrights. She hasn't yet mentioned AI to her students, but it's coming. It is terrifying. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's horrible. It's all these things at once. Marketing expert Dan Blank helps people share what they create. Overall, he's optimistic about AI. 
Ideally, it gives more people access to creativity. It encourages creativity. AI develops images and text by relying on human direction and human creations. You tell the technology what you want. For example, an Arizona sunset. AI will search images that have been scraped from the internet. You can direct AI to add more purple or use less red, include a mountain or remove one. Some argue it's similar to using Photoshop or Grammar Check, but Blank thinks this technology is different. Because already people worry that, will their voice matter? They worry, is the marketplace too crowded? They worry about, it's so hard to get attention. I do worry it's gonna silence people. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of developmental edits for my second novel. Erin E. Adams's writing encompasses horror, mystery, fantasy, and sci-fi. She's leery of ChatGPT, an AI tool, because it's trained from existing text. It generates words based on billions of books and online sources. Adams is concerned about writing becoming too formulaic. I already see it, like stories and novels just getting, for lack of a better word, less and less weird <laughs> and getting more and more predictable because those are things that quote unquote make readers happy. I would argue one of the best parts of writing is when your writing surprises you. And I think if we get into too much of the predictive aspects of AI, we're going to have writing that's no longer surprising. And that makes me really sad. Adams hadn't used ChatGPT before we talked, and I asked it to give me a sentence in her style. Here's what came up. Her eyes, pools of liquid moonlight, held a universe of secrets waiting to be unveiled by the daring souls who dared to look. It reads like somebody from my MFA class being like, make this scene how Aaron would write it. <laughs> I don't think that publishers are going to start generating AI novels to cut out the author or to pay less to authors or any of that. Jane Friedman has been reporting on the publishing industry for more than 20 years. She says publishers often rely on authors to promote and market their books. But what happens when AI cranks out quality books in hours or minutes when humans take months or years? I can foresee AI being good enough to execute orders and develop an 80,000 word novel based on a very detailed outline. Yeah. Do I think that's going to ruin authorship and literature? Uh, I hesitate to say yes, just because everyone's going to know. Um, and there will maybe there will be some people who are happy to read those, but I don't think it I don't think it eliminates the market for human work. Marissa Vadrio hopes not. When I have a show at 515 Arts or when I have the Sunny Slope Studio Tour and people photograph my work and I say, um, please tag me, please give me credit. She tried AI to help craft an artist statement explaining what she makes and why. I have to go through it. I have to change some things. I have to eliminate some things. But I was looking at it and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Vidrio doesn't plan to use AI to generate artwork and says she'd be disappointed to learn an artist she admires used it without telling people. And I'd be like, wow, that's a bummer. Okay, let's find someone new and fresh. Because there's always new artists out there. And always new technology. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now for something a little different. Here's the show co-host, Lauren Gilger, with the surprising and odd history of wizard robes. When you think of a wizard, you probably think of an old man in long robes, probably with a long white beard, maybe with a pointy hat. Well, our next guest says while wizards aren't real, this image of one and what one looks like is rooted in history. Larissa Grolamond is a medievalist and the assistant curator of manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And I spoke with her more about it. 
So the history of wizard robes really begins with the history of academic dress uh, in the European universities of the 12th and 13th centuries. So we have places like the University of Bologna and the University of Paris and some English universities who are mainly catering to clerics. If you went to this university, you were a cleric. And so as such, you were expected to wear clerical robes. And these robes were practical in some senses. So mm-hmm. these are large, very cold, drafty medieval buildings. And so these <laughs> robes would have been very practical for keeping people warm. But they're also really distinctive. So these universities are often in major urban areas, major cities. And so the clerical robes were a way of distinguishing your academic uh, standing and your kind of academic purpose and station from mm-hmm. the rest of the townspeople as well. So there's an element of rank and status for these. So as we think of it today, the academic regalia that you might see in graduations or you might wear in a graduation, this comes out of that tradition. And the idea of the standardization of academic dress happens over many centuries. But this was really already happening in the 14th century. So there are English universities like Oxford and Cambridge who are basically saying that not only do faculty and students have to dress in these academic robes, um, but their rank and status is often denoted by their hood. And so once you've attained a particular degree, a bachelor's degree or higher higher degree, your hood would then be lined with a particular kind of fabric. Mm. So it might be lined with fur or silk, and that would be kind of a visual marker for you that you had attained a particular level of education. That's so interesting. Okay, so yes, there's a long history to the robe itself, and we still wear them today, which is so bizarre. But how did this become associated with wizards? This is the next kind of step in the visual <laughs> tradition. So you have this idea of um, a particular class of people, um, clerics, and then eventually secular academics who are all wearing academic robes. And so they have this really particular look, and they're very recognizable. So this idea of um, education, I think, is a kind of sorcery, I think, is playing into this. These are truths and kind of mm-hmm. intellectual pursuits that are not available to everybody. And I think they can seem quite mysterious and even maybe a little bit sinister sometimes. And so there's also this kind of parallel thing where you have medieval scientists who are known as alchemists who are looking for basically the the thing that will turn base metals into gold. And this sort of sits at the intersection of science and wizardry. And often these images of alchemists, um, they're shown in these kind of academic robes. And so you kind of get this eventual conflation of the idea of magic, the idea of sorcery, the idea of something which is is not quite hard science uh, coming into the idea of robes. And so you eventually start to see the mapping of wizardry onto alchemy and kind of all getting mixed up with this tradition of academic robes, which are now kind of seen throughout Europe by the later Middle Ages. So, I mean, let's be clear, like wizards are not real, right? <laughs> but but there is this sense that we have, and it sounds like it's from a real place that, you know, the medieval times are associated with magic and superstition and sorcery and all of that. Was there a place for wizards and wizard lore in the society at the time? 
Yes. I mean, I think there's this sense that alchemy is not quite on the up and up. <laughs> so there's this kind of, uh, you know, quest for eventually making regular kinds of metals into gold. And this is a kind of a pseudo magical process, which is also kind of involved in the idea of chemistry uh, in the medieval era. And I really think uh, what is so fascinating, I think, is that we have these medieval images kind of from the later Middle Ages and then even into the 16th and 17th centuries when you start to get kind of printed treatises about mm -hmm. alchemy. But then you also have the kind of evolution of children's literature in the 19th and 20th centuries, which kind of casts the wizard as this mysterious figure dressed in a robe. Yep. And it just so happens that all of those tales also take place in the Middle Ages. Huh. And so there's like even another thread kind of coming in from that late 19th century moment. Hmm. And so you have this idea of like academic dress from the Middle Ages, alchemists dressed in robes who are kind of doing something magical. Mm -hmm. And then the setting of uh, children's tales and children's literature um, in the Middle Ages. And so you end up with this kind of ball of influences. <laughs> and, um, you know, the repetition of those images over time is really what cements the idea of wizards wearing robes in the imaginations of people in the 20th century and even up until now. Okay, so you are a medievalist, right? Like you study this time period. But how did you get interested in this idea of wizard robes in particular. Well, I'm particularly interested in the legacy of the Middle Ages in contemporary pop culture, especially, and the way the Middle Ages comes to us in media that we consume all the time. So the idea of medieval movies, the idea of medieval stories, um, TV shows, you know, all of these things that we live with all the time actually have a lot of their origins in little bits and pieces of the Middle Ages. Mm. And I'm really fascinated in the process, the kind of cultural process uh, from the Middle Ages till now that all of those things have gone through. And I'm a medievalist, but I'm also an art historian. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in this idea of visual, uh, what we call medievalism. Um, so this kind of representation of the Middle Ages in um, visual formats. And I think with things like costumes and fashion, these are the things that almost get reproduced without a lot of um, sort of critical interrogation. Mm -hmm. So people see something and they think, oh, that's what wizards wear or that's what you know damsels in the middle ages wore <laughs> yeah. and so i'll just sort of recreate that and over these many centuries of repetition you know the the middle ages comes to look and feel a certain way in the uh, contemporary media that we're consuming um, and so i'm really interested in that process that really takes place over so many hundreds of years oh that's so interesting all right we'll leave it there that is larissa grolamond the assistant curator of manuscripts at the j paul getty museum in Los Angeles joining us to talk more about the history of wizard robes of all things. Larissa, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteris News, organ pipe cactus are tall columnar cactus with many long spiny arms that grow up from a short trunk. They're found in Arizona, Sinaloa, and Baja California but they grow at their highest density only in Sonora, in a narrow band along the Gulf of California in the southernmost part of the state. From the Fronteras desk, Kendall Blust takes us to a research station located in this unique habitat. It's dusk at the Navapatia field station, and a cacophony of warblers, willets, and other birds fills the otherwise calm still evening. 
Navopatia is a small fishing town on the Giabampo estuary near the Sonoran border with Sinaloa, and it's part of what's known as the Pitayal Costera, the densest concentration of organ pipe cactus or Pitayo dulce in the plant's range. It's a unique ecosystem. It's not particularly large, but it is found nowhere else on the planet. Michael Krzywicki is the director of the Navopatia field station. He's here to study the diverse resident and migratory birds in the coastal Pitayal. You could be looking at snowy egrets, reddish egrets, white ibis, and long-billed curlew, and, and wimbrels out in front of you, and then you're hearing verdins and broad-billed and Costa's hummingbirds behind you. Biologists opened the field station here nearly 20 years ago to collect basic data about an ecosystem that was poorly understood, he says. Since then, they've recorded more than 250 bird species and hundreds of plants. Each winter morning, the research team counts birds in plots scattered throughout the Pitayal. So this is a 200 meter by 200 meter plot, and each time we visit, we try to take a different route throughout it, but still covering the majority of, of the space. As we walk, this wiki looks and listens for birds, jotting them down on a clipboard. Cactus wren thing. It's also a northern mockingbird calling off that way. There's been a cardinal singing that direction. Within 20 minutes, we've spotted 12 species. This plot was previously clear-cut for a failed shrimp farm. Some have been impacted by cattle grazing, others are undisturbed. The comparison helps researchers understand how land use changes impact birds and the ecosystem. By studying a bird community, you can understand what's happening at multiple levels of the food chain. That can help efforts to preserve this stunning habitat. Towering columnar cactus meet leafy coastal mangroves and calm waters where bottlenose dolphins dive just off the shore. It's rapidly disappearing. 40% has been lost since the year 2000, Krzywicki says. Yo llegué en 1960. Field station cook Guadalupe Mendivil needs tortillas for that night's dinner. She says her family arrived in Navopatia in 1960, when there were just a handful of houses on the edge of the dense Pitayo forest. Sí me gustaría que, que fuera Navopatia de ayer. She wishes it could go back to the way it was, she says. Though still remote, clear-cutting for shrimp farms and agricultural fields has eaten up many of the native plants her family uses for food and medicine. And irrigation from those fields regularly floods the dirt roads, making Navopatia harder than ever to access. Fewer tourists come here now, says her brother Luis Fortino Mendivel. He's mending a mist net researchers use to catch birds so they can gather demographic information and tag them with tiny metal bands. The arrival of the field station changed his life, he says, offering him opportunities to visit new places and learn about birds and ecotourism. And it's also the best chance they have to preserve what's left of the Pitayal. It's hard to understand the value of a place like this unless you spend time here. So Krzywicki says they bring in student groups, ecotourism, and interns from both the U.S. and Mexico. wow. No tenía idea que, que estaba esto aquí en Sonora. Enrique Sanchez interned at Navopatia this winter. He calls it a hidden treasure. It's 6.30 in the morning and we're kayaking across the estuary to Isla Masocari to do a bird count on a remote plot of island Pitayal surrounded by mangroves. Roseate spoonbills and yellow-crowned night herons perch on the branches and a mangrove warbler flits through the long roots. Sanchez says he'll never forget holding and being bitten by his favorite bird, the cardinal. 
He wants more people to get that experience and to see just how special this place is before its range shrinks much further. Because it's a habitat type that's found nowhere else, I think it's worth saving because it's a part of our global biological and cultural heritage. At Navopatia, they'll keep working to understand and conserve the Pitayal. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, reporting from Navopatia. And finally, in education news. Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tom Horn, has submitted new legal filings. It's part of his effort to keep transgender athletes from playing on school sports teams that differ from their gender assigned at birth. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports. Horn is fighting a federal lawsuit challenging a state law that prohibits biological boys from participating in girls' school sports. He held a press conference Wednesday where he said he feels deep sympathy for people who feel they were born in the wrong body, but... I also believe that biological males should not compete against females because it's unfair and it will ultimately undermine women's sports, which have benefited so much under Title IX. Horn was joined by Marshy Smith, one of 45 female athletes who signed a letter last year criticizing the NCAA's decision to allow males who identify as transgender to compete against women. Horn's most recent filing is a response to the plaintiff's motion for a preliminary injunction. He's the only remaining defendant, as the other named parties have decided not to defend the law. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.